Hello and welcome back to another episode of The Vincast. My name is James Kersbrook, sometimes known as The Intrepid Wino. And very excitingly, we actually have some international listeners to the podcast now. I've had a few people hit me up on Twitter in the last couple of days um, saying that they've they've heard a recent episode or they um, want to know ways they could listen to it. Uh, so it's really fantastic. They were actually from the US and you know, if you are international or if, wherever you are, just let me know. Um, you know, I'd love to hear from you. Just, you know, if you're enjoying the show or if you have any questions, um, yeah, just, just hit me up. Um, obviously, um, you can listen to the show on uh, my website, intrepidwino.com. Um, that's generally the first place that it goes up, but then the show actually gets picked up, um, via the feed that I provide to iTunes and Stitcher. And uh, essentially, if you have uh, an iPhone or an iPad, um, you can subscribe to the podcast with the podcasting app. uh, And that way, um, either you can download it on iTunes and transfer it or you can download download it straight to your uh, device. And that actually you keep, you can keep the episode and listen to them uh, as many times or as often. Um, and you can stop and start and however you want. Uh, and Stitcher is essentially the same, but Stitcher actually works on Android as well. Uh, and so yeah, the, the benefit of uh, listening on the, uh, I- on, through iTunes podcasting app or Stitcher is you can actually, um, interact. You can make comments. You can leave ratings. You can share them. They, they all connect in with stuff like Twitter and Facebook. So, um, would really, really appreciate, uh, if you enjoy the show, please do share it, um, with more people to, to, to get them really into wine because, um, ultimately that's what I'm trying to do is just get the message out about wine and, and bring people in who may be interested or maybe want to know more, um, to, to, to find out a little bit more. But uh, thanks, as always, guys, for listening uh, and and always for your support. So today I've actually uh, got someone on the the show who I've known for a little while now. Uh, I met him through Wine Communicators of Australia uh, and I thought has a really interesting perspective, particularly in terms of Australian wine, because um, he's actually, well, apart from, uh, someone from a winery, um, is my first international guest or second international guest, I guess. Uh, and his name is Ed Merrison, uh, and he is a, uh, a freelance journalist. So he writes about amongst other things, uh, wine and travel and business, uh, and, um, lives down, uh, in fact, on my favorite, uh, wine region in Australia, the Mornington Peninsula. Uh, so, uh, Thought I'd invite him in for a chat. So thank you for joining us today, Ed. Good morning, James. Thanks for having me. So, Ed, I uh, tend to ask my uh, guests, what what was the first interaction with wine that got you interested? Um, my first interaction with wine uh, growing up really was probably Christmases with an uncle or two uncles of mine who were big, uh, big wine drinkers. One yeah. of them always had pretty wealthy clients who's in um, property in in the UK, um, sort of rural property, and a lot of his clients used to give him very good uh, wines, and he used to keep a fantastic cellar in a proper old house, you know, a proper mouldy old cellar that used to stomp down the brick steps and wow. go and search down. And every now and again when we were probably far more, you know, likely to be drinking beer, uh, but also too, too young to be drinking um, officially, uh, Christmas time, obviously, all bets are off, and you're allowed to 
um, do things you're not supposed to, and we would all. Well, you're often, around family. Things, yeah, of course. No, it's it's, it's <laughs> just we never went out of control. But um, I do remember very well being invited to go down into the cellar every now and again and choose something, and it would be something I knew nothing about. But obviously, you uh, look at things, look at labels, pictures, names, um, and I was always into languages. I learned French from quite a young age, uh, yeah. and then ended up studying them at university, and I. Probably a lot of my background in wine comes down to certainly travel and also languages. So, although it was not relevant at all to the liquid in the bottle, just looking at names from exotic places in, you know, south of France or Italy or Spain, how, those how, things that I came across in that cellar, just always got me dreaming of places I wanted to go and visit. Um, and I'm sure I plonked a few pretty ordinary drops on the table but it was quite fun to be invited down to that cellar that was probably my first interaction was it a fun game to sort of you know pronouncing the the, the full the full names and all of the different regions and vineyards and that sort of thing yeah i, I uh it's something i've probably never grown out of actually to be honest part of my fascination with italian wine these days is just just how wonderful all the grapes sound in italy and all the regions yeah they, they just always sort of conjure up an idea when you look at, you know, Montepulciano d'Abruzzo or something like that, I just can't help but go and look at the atlas and go and look <laughs> at where these things are grown and what the weather's like and what the climate's like, what the cuisine is like. Um, and if I haven't been to them, I think about how much I'd like to go there. And what was, what was the path that kind of led you towards, I guess, journalism and then, and then wanting to write about the things that I guess you now write about? Well, really going back to what I said before, the my my background was was, was languages. I studied. Um, it's quite fortunate, really, to study French very young at school. It's mm-hmm. one of those random things. Our primary school just happened to have a French teacher called Madame Heather, who was. <laughs> um, we had a little caravan, and we used to go out a group of five of us and and do these French lessons, and that was really something that stayed with me throughout school. I was really interested in it because we did French. Um, early um, because I was quite good at it ended up doing Spanish as an extra um, subject after that German, Russian various things and everything I learned in languages just what made me want to travel, read books, watch films from other places and and go Well certainly as a a student of languages myself, at least in the past that was kind of one of the fundamental parts of learning the language was you learn about the culture, you maybe learn about geography, that kind of thing because it's only served to strengthen your connection with the language. Yep. To put it in context. Yep, absolutely. And and I guess the reason for using it practically is to go and talk to people who have different experiences from you, who grew up in a different place and who look at the world in a different way. And that's what that's kind of the next level, I guess, when you go to those places or when you're at home and you're lucky enough to have people coming through who come from somewhere else. Did you have the opportunity to go over to Constantinople, Europe? Earlier? Yeah, I did. Well, I, I grew up in Kent in um, the south of England. So we were, you know, on the, about an hour away from the ferry across to France. So it's quite usual for primary school age kids um, growing up, certainly in the south of England, just to hop on a ferry with a school group. That's just get primary school and go over. In Australia, when we think ferry, we think you know Sydney Harbour. Yeah. To to catch a ferry to a different country is just sort of so yeah. to yeah. us. So I was I was ten when I went on my first school trip to to France. Yeah. Um, in those days, it wasn't all about Burgundy and Bordeaux. It was about firecrackers and Hollywood chewing gum. That was the big. Um, 
What? The big jaw guard. <laughs> Hollywood chewing gum. It's just the French kids were mad into their chewing gum, and it was nothing good about it. I hate chewing gum anyway, but it was kind of a novelty at the time. Just something stuff. you can get out. Yeah, uh, and firecrackers were kind of banned in, in England at the time. And well, I wouldn't French know anything about that. Were, <laughs> French kids were right into them. So, um, yeah, that was... So, ever since then, really, went uh, overseas quite a lot. How can you have bonfire night without firecrackers? Yeah, your fireworks um, were more easy to get hold of. But these were these little things that you could kind of just... Oh, just bang. Yeah, the bangers, I guess. Sure. Uh, Which is confusing, of course, because they're sausages as well, where I come from. But um, from there, though, I I travelled as well to Spain for the first time on a school exchange, probably around the age of 16. Yep. Um, and that was great fun. Obviously, we went and, um, you know, at that age, you are drinking beer and offered wine by families that you go and stay with. Mm-hmm. And you don't really say no to anything, I don't think, when you when you do that. You, it would be rude it, it to It would be no. rude to, exactly. Um, so, yeah, I was very fortunate enough to go on those sort of school exchanges to, to various places. Um, and obviously, you discover food, you discover wine, but you talk to people as well. And that's really what travel and wine have often been about to me mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sort of completes the circle really in that wine speaks itself so much of where it's grown and the culture it grew up in and there are so many reasons for doing things the way people do that are just bound to the land and the the climate where they're growing and so going there and i guess interacting with the people and eating the food and drinking the wine at all kind of just essentially strengthen the connection to it and kind of and also i guess instilled this love and and interest in you yeah absolutely and it also keeps the conversation going i think um you know the more questions you ask about wine uh or you know the more yeah the more it sparks your curiosity i mean it's it's never anything other i think than uh, an organic an organic expression of where it comes from um, and the people who make it respond very much as I said to their to their own environment and their own history and their own traditions uh, and that's really why it's a, an ongoing story I always think that there's, there's almost maybe two or three kind of epiphany moments in any wine lover's um, experience the first one is where you actually discover the love of wine I think whether it's tasting a specific wine or having wine in, in a certain uh, context, or, you know, that, at, at that time it was perfect or just something that, that made you kind of go, oh, my God, wine is amazing. You realize the beauty and, and, and the fact that it's always different, that kind of thing. And then I think the second epiphany moment is where you learn, you've learned enough to then realize that you can never know everything and that sets you on that kind of path I guess uh, I can either it can either totally demoralize you to, to know you can never know everything. It's it's totally impossible, um, or it can you can you can actually say, oh, that's great. You know, that means that I'm no different to anyone else because no one can know everything. So yeah, you know, and and then you're, you're just on that quest to kind of find out as much as you can whilst you still can. Yeah. Um, did you sort of have that kind of experience? Like when? Yeah. Um, well, I suppose my, so stage one for me was, was the sort of European experience. Yeah. Um, and I have to say having moved, I moved to Australia in 2002. So I've, for, for many Australians, 
who are in the wine industry, I well and truly squandered that experience of being in the in Europe because I wasn't a wine drinker. I didn't come from a wine um, background. Um, my father's been teetotal since 1985, which kind of closed off that option at home. Yeah. Um, hence the importance of, of the uncle's influence in that, sure. in that cellar. Um, so that was the first, um, I guess the first stage though was, in fact, going back to what you said, that sort of discovery about what's interesting about it. Going back to that cellar, there was one day I was asked to go down and get two different white wines for to start a meal. And one of them was Sancerre and one of them was Puy Fuisse. Um, I think I'd probably heard of Sancerre at the time. I certainly hadn't heard of Puy Fuisse. Um, so I had to, you know, ask how, you know, how it was spelt. I'm not convinced my uncle probably would have pronounced it that well anyway. Mm-hmm. But I remember coming back with these two white wines and I was of that, I suppose, that uh, ignorant background at that point that I didn't know what I, either of these things were mm-hmm. and probably didn't think that they were that different from one another. They had different, very different names. That's all I knew and um, came back and tried them both. And wi- obviously, wildly, wildly different wines. Um, and that was my first sort of moment, definitely, where I'd say, wow, I, there is a lot to this. These are poles apart, and I couldn't put my finger on why they were different, but they were massively different. Mm-hmm. And I thought that in itself was quite cool. Um, and then from there, the European phase, I guess, was, was traveling. As I said, I lived in um, in Granada as well, in the south of Spain, um, for a year, and we drank wine pretty indiscriminately at the time. But... Um, obviously developed more of an interest but it really ticked up a notch when i came to australia um that's interesting uh yeah i would say that i'm probably not alone in this though as i say a lot of aussies would say i squandered the opportunity of being in in europe mm-hmm. um i came over here when i was about 25 years old mm-hmm. um so up to that point i hadn't really delved into wine you maybe had plenty of drinking experience but not well, I was from a, I was from a, I was a beer background, very much. You know, I was in in Kent. We had you know breweries. I think our oldest brewery dates back to 1646, where I came from. So pretty serious heritage down there. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, when you go to the pubs, you have um, always the local beers, but guest beers on tap. And when you um, you know when you grow up in as I did, firstly Sussex and Kent, and you have pubs with your local beers so we had Harvey's of Sussex which remains one of my favourite beers and in Kent Shepherd Neem around where I was is the brewery that's the one that dates back to something like 1646 um, but the guest beers from places like Wiltshire or you know uh, Yorkshire Cornwall they're places that you don't necessarily go to even though they're three hours away four hours in a car they feel like travelling when you're at that age, I think, mm. you know, you're, you're just drinking these pints and they're all slightly different. And I love beer. So that was my background. And I suppose that was why, another reason why, even at the age of 25, I wasn't really a wine person. Coming here, though... Having I, said that, like, if you're going to come here, you would have fit right in having a, a strong beer culture. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> in those days, there was not a lot of... Yeah. It's, I think it's a different a lot of uh, environment these days. Well, there was a lot of what they called beer. There was a lot of what I called beer. But, um... But yeah, I think it must be the same for a lot of English people coming over here that you come and the accessibility of a lot of Australian wines and I think, you know, varietal labelling and other things, it's it's very easy to understand for me how that sort of simplifying of things. Well, essentially that's how Australia had so much success, particularly in the UK market. And it's funny because you talk about 
that kind of initial introduction to wine through your uncle and kind of looking at these European, mostly I would assume French labels and having the connection to the, the French um, place names essentially. Yeah. But they were mystifying then though as well and I, that didn't bother me. I could see how that could... That's a huge barrier for some people to learning about something. Yeah, and it didn't in, help me learn. All it did was fire my curiosity because I liked the names. In in a way, <laughs> it's it's obviously it's different for us because generally we start from a varietal point mm. of view. So we we learn the varieties first, and then kind of learn okay, this region uses that variety or you know those varieties, that kind of thing, and it kind of maybe puts it in context. It must be a little bit more difficult to work back from that and actually find out, oh, okay, Burgundy, white Burgundy is made from Chardonnay, yeah. but so is Puy Fusse or, you know, like it, it, it's sort of, oh, okay. Oh, cause I thought they were different, but they're kind of the same. It's like, well, yes and no. Yeah. But that's, 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 as you say, that's why I think varietal labeling was one of the great reasons that people found Australian wine so approachable because mm-hmm. you can, you can draw the dots so much more easily. Yeah. Um, and that's really what I did. I suppose I didn't really see that much um, overseas wine on the table when I was first here. It was it was a lot of Australian wine. And mm-hmm. because I didn't come from here, that to me was already kind of exotic in itself. I think even in 2002, almost all the wine imported, certainly from Europe, would have been at the, generally the higher end. Yeah. Um, it has changed a lot, kind of since, weirdly enough, um, the global financial crisis. Um, uh, partly because I think you know there are a lot of European wineries who were willing to relax their pricing somewhat, mm. and maybe quality improved a lot in in some of the more marginal regions. But most, I think, it was the Australian dollar was so yeah. good that it made importing wines a little bit cheaper and, and so therefore the price was a bit more accessible for a lot of consumers yeah yeah i think that's that's very true i mean i notice a lot more of it now but then again i'm of course you know, stage where, years like ago. like most of my friends having to spend more than i can afford on wine because i need to discover more and drink more good stuff uh, but there's a lot more of it around i guess for imported certainly uh, from a lot of different places so it's an easy place to to go discovering mm-hmm. um, wines from Europe. But as I say, it's kind of odd way around to do it, to come over to Australia and do that. But um, but when you moved, when you moved to Australia, where did you move? Uh, to Melbourne. Okay. Yeah. Um, because to a certain extent, Melbourne and, you know, Sydney and I suppose most of the, the capitals probably do have more of a, a wine culture, shall we say. Um, and certainly, you know, more dynamic wine markets than most of the rest of the country. So I think it's, it's kind of slightly complicated to say in Australia. Yeah. Because Melbourne doesn't necessarily represent absolutely. Australia. So, so, so Melbourne, yeah, is absolutely, you would get access to a lot of really good, certainly back then, a lot of good Australian wine. And so that, and that was kind of the introduction, I guess, to Australian wine was moving to Melbourne. You hadn't really drunk much Australian wine over in the UK? Not really, no. Um, it was there, um, but when I left the UK, and obviously as a student, the stuff that we were looking at was contained in one small part of a supermarket shelf, and that was a very cheap uh, level of stuff. Spanish so, and Italian wine. Uh, yeah, well, and, yeah, and some of, the, of the, and the cheaper Australian 
Yeah, fair morning, enough. Then. But yeah, um, okay. but you know what I mean. It's you, when you're at that stage, you're not really going to spend more than a certain amount of money on wine. You don't even bother letting your eye wander across the shelf all that much. I'm I'm assuming yes, no. Wine obviously wasn't why you moved to Australia. It wasn't. No, I'm married to an Australian, so I'm married to someone <laughs> from uh, from here. We met in London in 1998. You met an Australian time. in London? Yeah, That's weird. That's right. And uh, so she dragged me back here in 2002. And and that was, as I say, when the sort of second stage of my interest in wine took place because we went traveling, as you do, to various places. Margaret River was actually the first place, apart from the Mornington Peninsula, that I went to. Not a bad start. Not a bad start. And um, talking about accessibility, I mean, just that fact. I mean, I was like everyone else, I guess, that you... I think people forget who work in wine how intimidating it is Mm -hmm. Um, or how stupid you feel if you don't know how stupid your questions are Um, and it was easier definitely coming to Australia and asking questions and having conversations because I found people were very open and chatty and in that relaxed environment you feel like you can you know let your guard down and come across as dumb and no one looks down at you because yeah i think there are still people who unfortunately do intimidate people yeah whether, whether that's what that's their intention or not that's true but i think sell it all wise yeah exactly uh, and that and you're doing is, a pretty bad job if you had people in your cellar door who are scaring people off i know it happens because i work in a cellar door and i hear stories of course about people's off experiences but on the whole Certainly going to South Australia um, for the first time. My wife and I were commissioned to do a story for a backpacker magazine in, in London about <laughs> wine touring. So we, As a backpacker. We pitched the idea because we wanted to go there, which is pretty much the, the basis of all the travel writing I've done, um, to go to Coonawarra, uh, Clare, Barossa and McLaren Vale in, in 10 days or 12 days, I think we had took a couple of bicycles and a van um, and had an absolute ball. And South Australia, I have to say, blew me away when I first went there just for how friendly it was, Mm -hmm. how completely relaxed we were in other people's backyards and how welcome we were. Um, And we had so much fun. We just didn't, didn't stop just talking and laughing and learning about what these people did for a living and how it all worked um, and learned so much about wine in that 12 days. I think that's, having that's, done a lot of, you know, research and by that stage, a fair amount of drinking. I mean, that was why I was able to pitch the story in the first time. I wasn't coming, you know, with a complete, uh, completely blank background to it, but I was astonished at how much you could learn having done your homework. Mm-hmm. Um, that's obviously the case now, as you say, the more you learn, the more you know that you don't know, but um, it was quite astonishing to me and it was such good fun. I think one of the big things that distinguishes, well, I suppose the new world in general, but certainly in Australia is there's sort of no baggage. There's no kind of centuries of tradition and, and maybe expectation. And there's no, there's, there's a lot less sort of rules and regulations stating exactly what, what you can grow and how you can make the wine, that kind of thing. And so I think that kind of, you know, the Australian, I guess, uh, mentality is pretty relaxed but i think that's part of why that that you know people are so kind of friendly and open can kind of oh yeah okay you know yeah i think i think it's also about personality i think people 
forget or perhaps Australia has changed and that's why people don't realise that still on a relative scale this is the case that Australians are on the whole very very welcoming people and they're very good talkers and they often show a great deal of personality very early on in their interactions with people yeah I mean coming from the UK which isn't as bad as some people would make out, but it's still pretty bad. On it's terrible on a customer service basis, I think, compared to somewhere like Australia. I have a theory, which is the colder the weather, the colder the people. Yeah, it's possible. It's possible. You get in the south of Spain or southern Italy, and people are just so yep. naturally, you know open and friendly and hospitable they like they're so generous they don't even realize they're being so generous they don't even think about it it's just the way they are it's it's interesting i suppose it's it's funny that australians who to a large extent uh originate from europe and uh, you know a large portion of that from the uk have kind of adapted to the climate of australia to a large extent i think maybe Melbourne being a little bit cooler, mm. possibly that has contributed to <laughs> Melburnians being a little bit more. But even yeah. even then, even even in Melbourne, people are pretty pretty relaxed and open. And generous. yeah, I think a lot of it is also perhaps a lack of rigidity in social et- etiquette. And in the UK, it's it's always been quite well, obvious. What's going on about class? But. It, it, <laughs> I think in the UK we always have this thing of what what is the done thing and what isn't and how you should behave and sometimes actually I think that that's not a bad thing but mm-hmm. sometimes it throws up very unnecessary um, barriers to acting in a normal open uninhibited way yeah um, and Australians are certainly less inhibited and sometimes that can be their downfall perhaps some would say in a social context yeah but on the whole look it's much better to be open and warm and say what you think rather than having sort of a couple of you know layers of barriers to get through to before people get to know you and certainly going to those wine regions you didn't get any sense that there was this sort of wall between you or that you had to respect everything so much and that you know this was hallowed turf and this is the way things are done and you know it was just oh these people are cool they're easy going and they make wine which is a great combination do you think that that actually translates through to the wine itself uh i think it does uh to a degree yes i mean obviously you were talking about rigidity in terms of bar- um rules of the how of what you grow where and how you grow it and you know i think europe has in some ways benefited greatly from the fact that it has rules but at the same time it's a bit of a straight jacket in other ways and i think australia has been able to express itself more easily mm-hmm. um for um for the lack of those um and the fact that it experiments very well does its, it shares information i think very quickly um which allows it to progress a lot but also allows it to conduct good experiments and make wine in a more exciting fashion sometimes um and i think it comes through in in the wines to a degree Mm -hmm. uh i think uh yeah i think there's a lot more scope actually still for australia to express itself in that way not just in the wine but the way it talks about its wine i think a lot of what makes it very appealing to the rest of the world um, when it really first 
burst on the scene was it was exactly that openness and that boldness mm-hmm. and that personality. Um, I think there's an awful lot of really, really great humour within a lot of the Australian winemaking fraternity. And humour is not really a word or a concept that you see that much in a lot of the world's wine. Um, I still look at a lot of the ban- so-called banter that goes on between some critics and I just think they just sound so stiff. And even when they debate humour, they manage on, to do On it. Twitter of all places. E- even on Twitter and uh, even uh, when they debate humour and they defend their reasons for not being humorous or they say, yes, I am, damn it, I'm funny. Um, it just doesn't sound right. It's not really there. And I think in the real world, what I see when I go to things and meet winemakers and talk to people who drink wine in Australia, it's a fun environment. That's that's true. I think you know that that kind of the larrikin nature mm. of of Australians and certainly Australian winemakers was a key to their success. How, I think what, you want, what, I think you you want you to see that. I think people still want to not not playing up to any kind of definition that the world might have of them, but actually to express their personality. I think is what people do want to see. Obviously. He's no longer with us, but um, we don't want winemakers going out and thinking they have to behave like Steve Irwin. But, um, okay, just to play devil's advocate, what do you think about maybe the suggestion that because of the image that Australia essentially established for itself through its its labelling and the style of wine it was producing and the kind of image of an Australian winemaker, you know, wearing an Akuba and Blundstones and, you know, cracking a tinny at the end of a long day kind of thing. Do you think that has served to dumb down Australian wine a little bit and and th- to, to then get to a point where people are complaining that Australia is not considered as a I hate to say, a premium wine producing country. Like they, they kind of say, oh, you know, the rest of the world has no idea Australia makes these amazing wines, but then refusing to accept that that's the image that they essentially established themselves. And I'm talking like in the international market to a large extent. Yeah, look, I, I think it's absolutely true that there there is a need for Australia to remind the world that it makes very good, serious wine, mm-hmm. as in seriously good wine. Um, especially, you know, after that. Like, just, after just from a regional perspective. Like yeah, yeah. To sort of uh, say each region makes different t- styles of wine. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely right. And, there, you know, I think there's quite a lot of acknowledgement in Australia at the moment that, that this is kind of like a, there needs to be a second coming, or perhaps there is a second coming already on international markets to, pro- um, to project this image yeah. better that it's yeah. not you know just the fun fruity sunshine in the glass um wave it's the wave of we're just as good as everyone else if not better um on all these you know all the points you expect in terms of you know regional expression in terms of quality experience. in terms of experience in terms of matching variety to to region etc mm-hmm. i think you know you, you have to project an image of seriousness in that regard but at the same time if everyone does that, then you're no different. And what Australia, I think, does have in its favour is it does have quite a lot more personality, I would say, than a lot of those regions, especially when you're, you know, up against countries that have, 
you know, these revered histories. I guess it's one of the best things that we have going for us is that we can change. Yep. Whereas for them to, for, for a lot of these really, really established regions in Europe to suddenly change, it would seem really empty. Yeah, I think so. I mean, what people want, I think, is a bit of excitement. Um, when you're trying to persuade them to discover your wine, it's not just about how good it is because mm -hmm. there's an ocean of good wine out there. That's mm -hmm. the point, I think. What you need to do is differentiate yourself probably on other things such as, you know, personality. What is it about your wine that's exciting? Mm -hmm. um, and Australian wine comes from an area don't forget that people want to come and see because australia tilts still to overseas travelers is an absolute must see place it's so you know, funny it's so different you forget how how what it's like to go and look at something like the clare valley with a foreigner's eyes because it's just another australian wine region to a lot of people who have been you know who live here but you know i remember the first time on the Riesling Trail, just casting my eye out in the morning light across the valley and just thinking, what a beautiful place. And I felt very, very far from home um, and in a good way. It felt like a properly foreign place where people spoke differently and acted differently and welcomed you in a different way. And it's stunningly beautiful. And I think that you, f you forget how desirable the name of Australia is to a foreign traveller. You know, when I when I was at school, that's what everyone wanted to do when they finished. They wanted to backpack across to Australia and there's a school exchange program, this sort of thing. I mean, people love this place. So this is the thing that I couldn't, and I think it's probably a product of having grown up in Melbourne and Melbourne to a certain extent, not being like most of the rest of the country. Um, I kind of never quite got the appeal of coming to Australia. It's like, you know, I understood like, Europe, oh my God, there's so much history and culture and, um, and you go to the United States and it's just sort of so what fun and they've got beautiful mountains and Grand Canyon and South America is sort of wild and sexy and Asia's got, you know, such a different culture and so many people, so many things going on. I always thought, why would you want to come to Australia? It's a big, empty country. Like, it's flat yeah. and it's dry and it's boring. Exactly. But, it's but, but it wasn't until I actually did a lot more traveling and then kind of after a while went, oh, this is really different to Australia. Now I understand why people want to go there because it is so different. Yeah. Because, like, just the, just the, the, the trees are different. I always think, uh, first, when I was back in... Because my wife and I moved back to the UK for a while. We, we actually lived in, in Argentina for a year wow. and back in London for about five years. Uh -huh. And then moving back, the first time I drove out of the city again was to go up to, to Bilk uh, in the Gambi. And there's just a moment on when you're driving out, for me, where it just feels like the sky just opens up. Mm -hmm. And it's the biggest thing you've seen for five years when you've been living in London. It's just like, wow, I didn't realise that my my vision could actually be opened up that much. You yeah. just see this vast space, a huge sky and all those, you know, gum lone gum trees in those fields just that seem to go on forever. And it's it feels completely foreign. Um, but of course when you're used to it, you just it's the same with everything. Every something that's different really 
lights your mind. But you've got to look at the things from a different point of view, I think, when you work in a place, especially Australia, it's quite hard to keep track of the rest of the world in some regards because yeah. you are so far away. Yeah. Um, but I think, I'm sure that when people from Australia go on their trips to, you know, Provine or to Venice or whatever it may be, that they start to think about themselves from an outsider's viewpoint again and must be, you know, reminded how exotic they are to other people. Yeah. Because when you're here, you just feel the same. But, you know, going as I was going back to my original point of going to Margaret River for the first time, um, you know, that's cool. Those beaches are amazing. Talking as a pom, amazing views and the caves and that scenery around there. And then interspersed all around beautiful wines with lovely wineries and kangaroos bounding out bounding around in the in the fields that's and, and cellar doors to be honest i think cellar doors were also a big way a really important way to create sort of ambassadors for australian wine back overseas because as you say a lot of people coming here for tourism and so you know there's it's it's a fantastic thing to do. Whether you come to Melbourne, you might go out to the Yarra Valley or down to the Mornington Peninsula. You're in Adelaide, you go to the McLaren Vale or the Adelaide Hills or the Barossa Valley. Um, you go over to Perth, maybe if you're a bit more adventurous, you go further away down to Margaret River, which is a good three hours. Mm. Um, and, you know, there's other stuff to do in those regions, which is fantastic. If you're a golf yeah. fan, you, you know, there's you'd other, love stuff, to get out to There's Mornington. other stuff to do, but talking about my original point about Europe where and traveling and thinking that this, you know, this bottle kind of opens up my, if I were to go and picture it or if I was to go to the place where this came from, I learn all about where the people are and how they grew up and what their ancestors did and the kind of world that they were born into and the, the climate and the history of the place. Yeah. Um, and of course, Australia's may have a short history in some ways. That's a Sorry, talking about you know, modern Australia. Um, but in some ways, that's a, an easy, accessible picture for people to take on board. Mm-hmm. You know, not like Europe where you're taking on um, layers and layers at once. But it's a really interesting short history too, I think. Um, and you go to Margaret River or you go to Yarra Valley. If you live here, you take it for granted. But those places, you know, they, they do seep their own history from every port. In Margaret River, you have, you know, the, the mapping of the zones and the grapes that they grow and why they grow them, the fact that they're right by the, you know, right by the ocean. And that's what people do when they're in their downtime. You know, surfing and wine is, is cool if you're not from an area that has surf or wine. Like yeah. I am. So, um, you know, they are, they're more interesting, I think, than, than, than you realize just because you, you're, you're familiar with them, I think. And in terms of the um, the more recent, I guess, freelance writing about wine, how how did you sort of come into those kind of opportunities? Well, I I kind of made them, I guess, because I was in um, in London prior to coming back here, uh, working in news, and I was working in twenty four hour news, which when I first started um, writing as a freelancer in sort of magazines and then into print media on, on newspapers. The idea that you would just have rolling news and headlines breaking in social media and multi-platform was, you know, couldn't really imagine it. 
and actually in a very short period of time I think breaking news and 24 hour news really started to bore me quite a lot mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I've always loved you know journalism and discovering and stories um, but I think by the time I finished in London after five years of 24 hour news I had enough well, uh, it's funny you say that because uh, actually uh, a former guest of the show had pretty much the same experience in London. Right. Uh, Daniel Honan, who, the wine idealist who's right. up in Newcastle. He, he was working, he, he has a, journalist back, a journalistic background and, uh, and he was working for, uh, I think, a 24-hour news service and kind of got a bit burnt out by it and... Yeah, well, it's solace, just, in know, a way, it's... In wine. <laughs> I, I, I got into... I got into writing and into journalism and into languages and into travel well everything because i enjoyed discovering and i enjoyed stories and i enjoyed depth mm -hmm. i guess that's one thing that i would say about all of my cultural pursuits you know i like to discover layers to things and if i'm reading something in a newspaper i want to know you know i want to know the background and i want to know everything if it's a good story yeah um and the one thing that's really happened to news more than anything else is this this doing away with any deeper layers of, of meaning um when you're writing scripts for television you just write snippets three sentences bang and gone um and so that whole reason really for the, the whole thing that stokes your enthusiasm and um and gets you and sparks your curiosity is that idea of delving into a story and you don't do it anymore in, in 24 hour news. Everything is taken over by something else and there's so much triviality to it. It becomes really quite meaningless. Mm -hmm. um, and when I returned to Australia, I kind of thought that's enough of that. I'd rather get into something that does still have layers and depth and good stories around it mm -hmm. and had by this time, really and since since coming to australia for the first time just got more and more interested in wine and it's something that's um i wanted to just learn more about mm -hmm. and um so when you say when how did the opportunity come up i guess it didn't really i just tried to make sure that there was some kind of opportunity and i'm still working on whatever comes up just right. to, just to work in wine because and it's interesting has, uh, how, how did you get involved you you joined the Wine Communicators of Australia? Yeah, so I returned uh, very uh, right at the back end of 2012. My wife and I came back. Um, and I'd actually written for some newspapers that belong or that are published by the same people that do the Great Grow and Winemaker magazine and the Wine and Viticulture Journal. Yeah. Um, hence my trip to, to Bilk in, I think it was November 2012, because they are the hosts of the Great Australian Shiraz Challenge. Yeah. Um, so that was my, my first commission, um, in this new venture. So pretty recent really. But so you were writing there, about it? About writing about, yeah, I had to go up and interview the winner, which in 2012 was, um, Leckenfield Wines for their Richard Hamilton Shiraz, mm -hmm. which won, I think it was a $20 bottle of Shiraz that won the under $25 bottle and the great Australian Shiraz challenge outright um from its 2010 vintage so i interviewed paul gordon from leckenfield at the dinner and yeah i was uh that was my first job i guess in of, of what's a fledgling but continuing uh career i hope in wine but you've had the opportunity to sort of uh i guess meet with and write about um 
wine wines and wineries from the smallest to the largest um and certainly you went i think you went across to adelaide for savor which i believe i mentioned yeah um in a previous episode that was this big thing organized by wine australia uh, a lot of international guests were invited down and it was this huge sort of symposium to about that's Australian right it was wine. in september last year and so talking about that earlier i mentioned the sort of the second coming i guess that this is part of that kick-starting trying to re-energize the Australian wine industry and put it back show the world that it's back um, and it's serious and it's better than ever um, so yeah I was lucky enough to go to that and really enjoyed it got a lot out of it um, and thought it was a very good um, a good forum really and I think for a lot of people just the beginning of, of this new assault I guess on export markets for Australia but that was you know, really interesting to see how Australia sees itself as a wine industry. And it's had some terrible years, terrible, terrible challenges over the last um, sort of five or so years. And I've just completed for the Great Brown Wine Maker Magazine a feature on the top 20 wine companies of Australia, which kind of gives quite an interesting snapshot because this year compared to last year, most of these guys are moderately more... Uh, optimistic about their place in the world in terms of export markets. I mean, part of that, the dollar, although it's sort of heading, seems to be heading up again, has um, helped them a little bit by weakening uh, a touch. But um, yeah, I've, it's quite interesting just to see the uh, the picture as viewed by big producers and, you know, right at the other end of the scale, I suppose, where I am on the Mornington Peninsula. Um, and uh, I guess a lot of the stories that I've covered for other things has been at the much smaller end of the scale mm -hmm. so um you know as an industry i think it's 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 faced some really tricky questions and it still does but um it is still producing some uh, you know fantastic products and it has a very good story to tell there's great diversity here great personalities behind the wines um and i think the opportunity is huge but so is the challenge for them. But it's a very, it's an interesting thing to write about always. Like I said, the thing that drew me to it in the first place was, you know, the names, the places, the people and the stories. And that's why I'm still here. True. You're also, you've written some articles for The Guardian. So um, obviously UK based. And I think uh, you actually wrote about uh, a former guest of the show, um, Tom Carson and uh, the momentous win of uh, the Jimmy Watson trophy. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah, Tom was very interesting to talk about. And it, I guess it, last year was, I don't know, people were talking about it as being Pino's year and then there was, it's going to be Pino's decade. I'm not sure if it's going to last for uh, 10 years. But it's, there's no doubt about it, is there, that, that Pinot Noir is kicking some pretty big goals at the moment in terms of international and domestic recognition. Mm -hmm. um, one of my favourite drops, yours. Yeah, of course. Pinot was sort of that was my um, that was my prolific wine moment was um, actually uh, nineteen ninety seven Yeringberg Pinot Noir mm. enjoyed uh, my my sister's twenty first birthday dinner at Izard and um, I think that that was the one that I tasted and I just got it. I think I'd already liked Pinot Noir and so that's why I was excited to order it. You know, it was it had a little bit of age on it, which was always sort of wow, cool. Um, I think I've probably I don't drink as much Pinot Noir as I probably did in the past. 
I think now I tend to gravitate more towards Italian wine or Italian varieties, certainly. But um, I'll always come back to Pinot Noir and, and Chardonnay. They were the, the two that got me. Yeah, we're well, living most. down on the Mornington Peninsula. It becomes something of a default. So uh, <laughs> I'm going the other way. Well, I'm not going the other way. It's been fantastic, actually, to get to know um, more Pinot Noir than uh, I did before. Certainly when I first came to Australia, talking about those times of discovering wines you know, 12 years ago, um, Pinot Noir was out of my price range then. <laughs> it still is, but, you know, I guess I'm able to pick up some dog ends here and there apart from anything else. Yeah, but the quality the quality of Pinot is under $20. Yeah, absolutely. has actually improved has, quite a lot. I yeah, think that's and been it's a, still... a really big, big, big effect yeah. on, um, on Pinot in Australia. Yeah, yeah, and they're, I mean, that's a continuing trend I think mm. there are more more popping up has to be here and there um, so I think I was saying good. to you um, preview, uh, off, off air that um, there are a, a number of varieties certainly in Australia where you can actually get some really really um, surprising quality I think um, Pinot Noir probably in the past hasn't been one of them mm. um, but hopefully that, that is, continues to change yeah, I think it's also because um, we were talking about this with regard to Chardonnay. Because I work in a cellar door, which is a specialist in, in Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, and so I face an awful lot of questions about Chardonnay, um, among other things. We we managed to talk about all varieties and all regions because people who come in, um, you know, they love to share their stories about what they what they like to drink and what their kind of comfort drops are, I guess. Uh, and Chardonnay, I, you always find it has probably the greatest, probably the greatest level of misunderstanding. I think in some ways, um, a lot of people have been put off and scarred. And I, and I realise that you know that it's quite easy to make generalisations about things that you don't drink very often. Sure. Um, hence my um, my sort of weeks project is to have a look at some some Chardonnays from further down the price range and. Just check in because you just find yourself if you're not careful, you know, spouting or, you know, perpetuating the same myths if you're not careful. If you don't look at these things and see actually if your memory of them is the same or whether they have actually changed since you last had a good look. Mm-hmm. Um, so the worst thing would be for me, who, who you know, very, uh, someone who's very interested in people's perceptions of wine and their, their journeys. Um, the worst thing I think I could be is lazy myself in you know not looking for new things and not making sure that i have um tasted the things i'm talking about i think there are a lot of uh, people involved with wine whether you know journalists or um people working in trade or winemakers themselves who i think um forget what most people are drinking and most people are drinking under 15 dollars yeah and essentially that's sort of you, you can't forget that um, I guess that segment because otherwise you're just going to continue to lose people because a lot of people that's their starting point yeah. we want them to um, I guess graduate to higher higher quality and you know ideally higher priced wines but if we forget if we, if we, we neglect that segment then um, we'll never get them onto wine in the first place yeah oh I think you know prices aside one thing that was one of the guys that I spoke to as part of this top 20 feature for the great grand winemaker magazine um said that you know his his biggest wish is just that people think about wine you know and i think that that's really all there is to it i think in any in, in any industry that you work be it you know in publishing or in 
you know, movie production or anything. Or luxury fashion. You do want people to choose based on on thought and consideration rather than just on price because... Mm. And also what they like. Yeah, because, well, the minute that you... If you... Whenever you work in something where everything is driven by price, obviously all incentivizing comes back to that too. Mm -hmm. And then over time, most products will be geared towards that. Yeah. And I think with wine, the most important thing, or with any of those things really, is that you do want people to come at it with an open mind. Uh, if they do and they choose to drink, you know, they drink what they like, that's great. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it doesn't really feed, I don't think, a very interesting society when you have people making choices on anything, be it wine, as I say, be it books, be it, you know, the movies they choose to go and see in the cinema. It only gets done down if people don't have, I guess, an incentive or a means to open their minds and choose differently or think more deeply about what they do. Um, and anyone who's passionate about wine just wants to see see it be an active, dynamic, interesting sector where you know you really can drive decent um, decent new products into the market potentially, but also just continue to make the best you can and have it and find a you know find a market for it because mm. otherwise it does get dull, very dull. <laughs> uh, well. I think it's been a really fascinating chat. Uh, thank you for joining me today, Ed. Um, what's the best way people can um, can get in touch with you? You're on Twitter. Uh, I am on Twitter at Van Merison. That's V I N M E W R I S O N. Um, or I'd love to have more people have a look at my blog, which is bonzogonzo.com. Uh, apologies for you might have that's to spell quite that. difficult to spell. B o double n e z e a u x g o n z o Bonzo Gonzo. So it rhymes, but it's just a stupid thing to call your blog if you want people to find it. But have a look. Great, Gonzo, obviously in reference to Hunter S. Thompson. Yeah, and Bonzo <laughs> in reference to sweet wine from the Loire. Oh, I thought it was. Oh no, it went. I thought I was thinking of Gonzo. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, thank you again, Ed, and I look forward to catching up with you um, somewhere out there to taste toys. Brilliant, your James. Sport. Well, thanks for having me on. I've enjoyed it. Uh, thanks again for listening, guys. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, please do um, hit me up on the blog intrepidwino.com where I have all the episodes. Uh, but do subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Uh, and please, please leave me um, a rating, a review, comments, interaction of some sort. Hit me up on Twitter at intrepidwino or the podcast is at the vincast. But until next time, bye.